an exploration of storytelling with Chris Thompson. A Story Archaeology audio article. When we visit a library or a bookshop, we're absolutely used to the idea that the shelves are sorted out into subject areas, genres, reading material for every taste and age group. We're ready to discriminate between fiction and non-fiction. We understand the concepts of biography, history, commentary, at the same time as appreciating the flights of imagination contained in shelves of fantasy and science fiction. We choose books for children carefully, with reference to recommended age suitability. We use much the same process in selecting material to watch. Oh, we have a glorious plethora of genres and styles to choose from, and we can be very choosy. We're surrounded by stories and storytelling. Libraries are largely free, TV and films are daily fare, and on top of that, most of us have unlimited access to streaming services online. Audiobooks, box sets, YouTube. Never in the history of the human race have we had such open access to fiction and non-fiction in every form imaginable. We take it for granted whether we're seeking for entertainment or attempting to satisfy our curiosity with research. I'm afraid I can remember when it took time to request research information from a library or order a book specially rather than just checking data with a few clicks. It's so rapid a procedure now that it's even more important than ever to ascertain the authority of the material that we're accessing. But, Shinsuke, that's more than just another story. It's a whole can of worms. Do you know, I really must ask Isolde what the Irish equivalent for a can of worms is. Don't know whether it exists in early Irish. Now, if we go back to the time of our early Irish stories, clearly it's a different matter. It goes almost without saying, obviously. There was no TV, no films, certainly no internet, and books would have been an extremely expensive, restricted rarity. An extreme rarity. The time of the stories. I keep repeating this phrase, but what time are we talking about? When do the stories date from? Well, that's also a can of wriggling worms. What do I mean when I refer to the date of the stories? Am I talking about when they were first told? Or when they were first written down? Yep, another worm receptacle. Trying to answer this in any detail would make an entire audio article in itself. Stories don't stop being told once they've been recorded. They continue on in the oral tradition, changing, adapting to suit their current audiences. Well, neither am I qualified to comment directly on the age of the stories, as I'm no philologist. I have to depend on the varied early Irish authorities from the past, such as Kunamaya, current experts such as John Carey, and I'm not intending to underestimate the philological abilities of Isolde either. But as I understand it, roughly, the highly literate, unexpectedly literate Irish monks began to record some of the native stories as early as the 8th century, although the language is already archaic and could easily date back to 600 CE, uh, so the philologists believe. The stories were already old and must have been popular then to be worth recording and putting in writing. This is not intended to be an academic article, and I'm mostly speaking from memory, 
but it addresses the points that I'm attempting to make. By the end of the first millennium, when still extant, we have them today, anthologies of Irish stories were beginning to be compiled, those stories were already regularly told. And they were clearly so popular that the monks felt it important to record and retain them, even though many were not, shall we say, devotional material? So here's some questions. What was the target audience and in what setting were they told? Who told them? And what made them so memorable? For the purposes of this audio article, I want to look at the stories as having first been told in perhaps the late Iron Age into early medieval times, before 900 CE and certainly before Norman influence. There are good reasons for this. They could have come from that far back. Late Iron Age society and styles are definitely reflected in the text we have. And earlier times are actually mentioned. For instance, in uh, folklore and in some texts, Concover Macnessa is said to have died when he heard of the death of Christ. A synchronous concoction, no doubt. But it demonstrates that the stories were thought by the recorders to be set long ago, just as we might recall stories of Arthur today. So to get back to my questions... What was the target audience and in what setting were they told? Well, they were told to everyone, young and old, noble and warrior, woman, men. Storytelling would have been the main performance art of the time. Now, I didn't say the main entertainment of the time. If I said that, we would have to include all the popular sporting entertainments, horse racing, wrestling, martial acrobatic skills and general showing off and lots of gossip. You know, folk don't change. There may have been no TV, but we have the same mixture of sports, storytelling and reality gossip that makes up our general fare of TV and online activity today. I don't know about the weird and wonderful pet performances. However, from the lore text, which emphasises a lot of stuff about pets, cranes were a popular choice for ladies. I suspect that pet antics were there just the same as well. Who knows? So, when were they told? Any time when people gathered together, remember in even the richest household, people lived together, sharing space. Privacy was not a priority. It's quite recent that that's so. In late Iron Age society, houses were dark and definitely smoky. Windows were largely absent and if ever present, unglazed. The Romans may have had uh, glass, but it wasn't particularly well known in Ireland at that time. And from the early texts, it's certain that feasts were not just popular, but a central group bonding activity, and storytelling was definitely a main form of the entertainment used at the feasts. Several texts describe the pleasures of dividing the day into three main parts, three sets of activities. One, hunting, fighting, training, sports, all the active things. Two, eating, drinking and storytelling entertainment and general um, indulgence. And three, sleeping. That's not bad. And in the Battle of Moidura, part of Cabra's satire, which actually leads to the deposition of the King Bresh, doesn't just concern the starvation of his people. Bresh is also accused of not providing storytellers. And providing music and storytellers for the feast was just as important for the king's brugu as a full and abundant cauldron of food or a foaming vat of mead or beer. 
Later texts, of course, organised the story canons into sets of stories that were suitable, say, for births or weddings or journeys or funerals and more. They were all organised into genres, if you like. And this indicates that relevant stories both recognised and augmented the importance of everyday life events. So storytelling was really part of everyday life. And who told them? Well, the poet storyteller, particularly the highly trained filler, were high status and important individuals. Now, they undertook a wide variety of roles, not just to be the providers of entertainment. A high status, the highest status king's poet, was at the top of his status tree, just as the chosen chieftain was at the top of the warrior path, or the brugu was at the top of the tree that included landkeepers and farmers. A top filler was entitled to create praise poems that would ensure a warrior achieved and maintained the reputation of an elite champion, or that a king kept hold of his sovereignty. Equally, such a poet could, after giving due warning, it was a legal matter after all, formulate a satire which was capable of destroying the same reputation and leading to ridicule and worse for the offender. Of course, these high-status poet storytellers were not just entertainers. They were the individuals who understood local law and the stories of the land, that's Dinhianicus. They were knowledgeable about family history, that's genealogy, very important to status-conscious nobles. Top poet storytellers would also be responsible for negotiating treaties between tours and or settling disputes within tours. As they could travel more freely than warriors... Understandably, travelling armed warriors and chieftains wouldn't be certain of a welcome if their poets had not paid their parts in advance. They were always going to be the ones who carried the news and the latest gossip from other tourists and groups. But don't get me wrong, they were great wordsmiths, and even the ones with more serious missions in hand would still have been able to tell a vivid and riveting tale or two, or 250 more like. I've been talking about important, well-trained, qualified poets who would have been found in high-status households. So what about the ordinary folk, the artisans, the peasants? How did they fare? I know, they always get forgotten. In almost any culture, it's the people who work on the land, the everyday artisans, the assistant wheelwrights, horse harness makers, etc. They always get ignored. Yet they too would have gladly returned to their firelit homes after long days in the fields or workshops. They too would have welcomed exciting and entertaining stories, news and of course gossip. If you were listening to the Q&A that Isolde and I put together towards the end of last year, you'll know that in particular Isolde talked authoritatively about all the many grades of poets, the ones who were qualified and the ones who weren't qualified. Besides the high-grade filler, there were the highly experienced but unqualified bards available for telling tales, and there were plenty of grades on that tree as well. Some of the bardic grades had great names, especially the lower ones like Bramblehound, and even one that Isolde tells me is roughly translated as Blockhead. I'll put a link to the Q&A on the webpage. The point is that there were stories and storytellers for everywhere and everyone. And maybe this is why the stories continued growing in strength and energy in the oral tradition. They continued to develop and become ever more embroidered in the telling. There is plenty of evidence for this. The story of the voyage of Bran and the heralding of the birth of King Mongon by Malanan is an early text. 
But the later 15th century texts, which tell convoluted stories of Mongorn's exploits with his wife, Dovlaka, and his trusty sidekick, Makandav, well, they're riotous with colour and outrageous exploits. These texts now read like later recordings of oral tales that would have been much loved in the telling. It's a great pity that the memory of so many of them was lost in later times. The same fate would have been true for the unruly and bawdy medieval version of the early Irish tale of Fergus MacLager. The early version of the tale is one of my favourites for retelling. It reports how the king encounters a few of the diminutive fierce warriors from Land Under Wave, the Lubicorn. King Fergus escapes, but grabs one of them, demanding a gift for his release. And this is where the Lubicorn give him a bunch of herbs to stick in his ear, and this will allow him to walk underwater and gather up hidden and magical treasure. But the later recorded 15th century version gives a far greater role to the uninhibited Lubicorn. The king of the Lubicorn, Yuvdorn, visits Fergus and falls into the king's goblet and has to be rescued. The miniature king becomes a great favourite with the ladies of the court and his wife gets in on the act too. Later, Fergus's poet makes a return visit to the land of the Lupercorn. He becomes a celebrity giant and gets up to a variety of antics. Now, does this sound familiar? Maybe. The tale was first translated into the English language no more than 20 years before Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels. And if you think of that book as merely as a children's story, it may be not. It was written originally as a fairly sharp satire on some then recognisable political personages. And that tale of Fergus MacLager, well, there are parts of it I wouldn't use in my school's retellings either. Some of it was far too risque for the 19th century translators. Ooh, what would Lady Gregory say? But you can't keep a good story down. Elements of these Irish stories turn up in the most surprising places. Over the years, we've pointed out several examples of this in various story archaeology podcast episodes. So, the third question, why were the stories so memorable? They were originally intended for a largely adult audience. They were intended to build up the status of the king and his tooth by telling extravagant story of ancestors and heroes that reflected well on the group's own status. They might also be stories intending to illustrate how coir, that natural balance, could be upheld and maintained. For instance, the Battle of Moitura is upholding and restoring this natural balance and flow. But they could equally tell stories warning and teaching about the dangers of ignoring the truth of the king and risking the natural balance by poor judgments, the breaking of taboos or kinslaying. And the toy in Bolkunia is a very good example of this. But whether they were teaching stories or whether they were examples of good behaviour or bad, to be really effective, the stories were crammed full of exaggerated hero feats, marvellous exploits and memorable characters. Tragedy or comedy, the plots and settings rivalled anything Hollywood could contrive today. And sumptuous settings and special effects were ably added by the superb wordsmiths with their detailed descriptions and poetic, fast-paced action sequences often given in the ancient Rosk poetry style. How much of a performative element was included is difficult to tell for certain because what we have now has been retained only really in textual form. 
However, I think there is evidence for a high, fairly high level of dramatic performance involved. Many texts imply several voices in the telling, either as a group of characters answering each other or in the question and answer form. And it's highly likely that music was involved. Certainly the status of the harpist was as high as the poet. So harp and storytelling could well have gone together. Whether props and costumes were used, well, there's no direct evidence, but I don't see why not. The tellings, in any case, would have been dramatic, comedic and highly entertaining. I could go on talking about this subject at length. Storytelling traditions that have continued into the present can suggest models and oral tradition theory has much to contribute to this topic. But this audio article is going on a bit and I want to keep a focus. I wouldn't want to lose my audience, so I'll add a few further reading links to the page and get back to storytelling. Direct storytelling, storytelling to an audience that is, is now largely regarded as something for children, generally even for young children. The old Irish stories, as I said at the start of this audio article, were mainly intended for adults and they're really largely unsuitable or unintelligible to the under eights. But they can be ideal for the 8 to 12 year old audiences, although older children like them too, and I use them with uh, secondary schools and writers groups, and if Aideen and Mither isn't a suitable teenage tale, I'm not sure what is. Many Irish stories also equally rival the best of the modern Marvel hero tales with their mixture of character flaws and superpower feats. The problem, no, not a problem, the challenge is that so many of the lesser known tales are only available in turn of the century pseudo medieval style translations and better known tales have largely lost their connection to the text and have become, become either the stuff of national narrative, well that's understandable but no longer attractive, or merely generic fantasy. The mystic knights of Tirna Nog, fortunately, are hopefully entirely forgotten. I don't have an answer, but I'm working on it. A main part of my activities nowadays is to provide workshop for schools using storytelling, drama and creative writing to re-energise interest in the stories with children and their teachers. And I'm finding that I'm having to develop my own retellings all the time. I want these to be as true as I can to the historical and archaeological context. I want them to respect the text but I don't want them to be limited by the text and it can be a balancing act. I have been promising to set up a Patreon site where I'll make these new retellings available uh, to a wider audience. I hope there'll be other things on the site as well. It's taking time because I want a body of new work recorded and ready so that it can be made available, but I don't want to launch the site from Shinnan's Well until it is ready. Well, the stories are on their way. Remember that joke about Microsoft updates? Next week, next month, when it's good and ready. But I thought I today I might record one of my favourite stories. I tell it regularly in classrooms. I get members of the audience to act it as I tell it. It uses some props and a lot of description and imagination. And it's also one I don't think I've told on story archaeology. One reason for that is that it is a Fenian story 
And as Isolde says, we'll get there. But because the Fenian stories remained in the oral tradition so long and were then recorded at such a late date, the texts are very, very convoluted and somewhat complicated. The other reason is that this is really a composite story. I have been telling it in one form or another for 20 years. It's a version of the House of the Quicken Tree, but closer to the oral than any extant textual version. It may also have absorbed elements from a great influence on my own storytelling, that of the musician and storyteller Robin Williamson. Oh, all right, I did once own a complete incredible string band vinyl record collection. I don't have it anymore. But his five denials on Merlin's grave, heard it seems like a lifetime ago, set my own feet on the path I now follow. So this is my version, with a nod to Robin, I suspect, I don't really remember now, of the story of Conan Whale. It respects the characters, acknowledges the background text of the House of the Quicken Tree, and works in its patterning and its comedic and dramatic elements. See what you think. But I have to say, it's far easier with a live audience. This is the story of Colin Ware. Now once so it is said, there were many great warrior heroes in Ireland. I'm sure you've heard of Colin. Now there was a hero. Hardly more than a boy, but he could perform the salmon leap on and off of a moving chariot whenever he felt like it. And then there was Finn. Finn McCool. Ah, you've heard of his name. Well, he was said to be the wisest, the strongest, the cleverest warrior in the whole of Ireland. Maybe I'll tell you one of his stories. Oh, wait a minute. This story isn't really about Finn. But let's keep going. Now, Finn had many friends. In fact, his best friends were among his own warband, the Fianna. Now, they were a brave bunch. And if you were thinking that you might like to have joined them, were there a few things you'd had to have been good at? Hunting? Fighting? No. What you needed to be really, really good at if you wanted to join the Fianna, you had to be good at poetry. Yes, poetry. If you wanted to join the Fianna, your first qualification had to be that you knew the 12 books of poetry, from beginning to end, from start to finish. This isn't as crazy as it sounds. After all, if you wanted to join the Fianna, you'd needed to have found a fine poet to sing your praises, to create the best and most perfect praise poems about you. But if you were a poet yourself, then you could create your own praise poems. And who better to praise you than yourself? But being a poet wasn't enough. Oh yes, you had to be a fighter. And one of the tricks and one of the tests was they'd take you and they'd stand you in a deep pit and then they'd put a blindfold on you. And then they'd give you a big stick and then the other Fianna would set about you and you had to defend yourself, blindfolded, in a hole in the ground. And if you think that sounds familiar, sounds like a certain Jedi training practice. Well, you heard it in the Irish stories first and that's often the way of it. Well, once you'd passed that test, there was one more that you had to pass. 
and they take your shoes off you and they tie your hair up tight because in those days men were the ones with the long hair and the fine hairstyles and then they'd send you hunting through the forest but you'd be the one who was hunted and they'd follow behind you and if they heard even the crack of a twig beneath your feet or the rustle of a leaf as you passed it by then you couldn't get in the fiona when you returned if so much as one hair was loose from the plait of your head, then they'd turn you down as well. Oh no, you had to be really good to join the Vienna. I ought to tell you about some of them, some of Finn's friends. One of his oldest friends was called Gulmut Mourner, red-haired with a temper to match. Only, really, this story's not about him. Then there was Diermut. He was such a good-looking young man. But when he was hardly more than a boy, He'd been chased by one of the women of the she, and she nearly caught him, which might not have been a good thing because they can bring you more tricks than treats. And just at the last moment he escaped, but she touched his forehead, and it left a mark. And after that, any girl who saw him would go, Oh, dude, and fall at his feet in a swoon, which was great the first time. It wasn't bad the second time, but after a while it got really boring, and so he kept the mark covered. It's just one thing. This story really isn't about Jermud. Oh, yes. Then there was Colin Whale. Now, I need to tell you about him. A big man he was. I'm fond of his food. When he sat down to eat, he wouldn't leave the table, not until there wasn't a scrap left behind. He'd eat every crumb. He drank every drop. Now he liked to be called Conan the Magnificent. But behind his back, they used to call him Conan the Greedy. And there's one more thing I ought to tell you about him. He was completely bald. There wasn't a hair on his head and that's how he got his name. You may not think that's funny. Nobody thinks baldness is funny nowadays, but back then, when men wore their locks flowing free and had the fanciest of hairstyles, they thought to be without a hair in your head was very funny. So behind his back, they called him, as I said, Colin the Greedy, but occasionally they'd add, Colin the Bald, Baldy, Baldy, but to his face, they always called him Colin the Magnificent. And this story is about him. Oh, there's one more thing I ought to tell you about, Conan. He had it in for Dermot. For some reason, he couldn't stand him, and Conan had a very sharp tongue. And Dermot, to be honest, was just the tiniest little bit afraid of Conan Whale, although he would never have told him that to his face. Now, one day, our four heroes decided to go out hunting. So they picked up their bows and their spears, and off they went into the forest. Now at first they took all the paths they knew, and when they ran out of paths they knew, they took paths they didn't know, and if you take paths you don't know, you very quickly find yourself lost. So here we find our four heroes lost in the forest. And then something really bad happened. Something very, very bad happened. It began to rain, and heroes, with their elegant, spiky limed hairstyles to protect, well, they needed somewhere to take shelter, except for maybe Colin Whale. But they looked around and they came into a glade and there they saw before them the most beautiful roundhouse they'd ever seen. 
Its thatch shone as if it was spun with gold. And what's more, the door was open. Well, they went up to the entrance and they looked for the doorkeeper, which was only polite, for you never entered such a roundhouse as this, surely at King's Doon, uh, without being invited in. There was no one there. So they went in and had a look round. This was indeed a King's Doon. They all stared around them in wonder and a degree of curiosity. Now it was Finn who noticed the lintels of the doorway. Fine wood they were, carved with intricate designs. This was indeed a king's palace. Gull looked upwards. It was he who noticed the high roof trees and how well the place was constructed under its golden thatch. This was indeed the seat of a king. As for Diermut, his eye was drawn to the woven hangings on the walls, such bright-coloured, well-dyed walls, such fine designs and patterns. Surely this must be the home of a noble man or woman. But all that Conanwale saw was the table in the centre of the room by the fire, and it was piled high with food. Well, the four heroes were hungry, and there was no one to tell them to go, and so they sat down. But as all good heroes should, one hand to their weapons and one hand to their food, all except Conan. He had two hands on his plate and two eyes on his food, and he stuffed his face. Fine meats, fresh bread, good cheese, red wine... He ate and drank, and then he went on, eating and drinking, as if he could never be full. Now it was Diermut who first noticed that something had changed, something was different. Those fine woollen hangings, those weavings, now they seemed faded, as if they were woven of silver-tattered cobwebs and dying moss. And it was Gull who looked up and saw the trunks of the trees that had formed the roof were no longer straight and well finished. These looked like gnarled old tree roots and surely they were lower and they dripped dust and moss. Something was very wrong. But it was Finn's eye that turned to the entrance. Oh, this was no longer the welcoming door to a great palace. It had shrunk, turned into a, a round hole, thick with moss, thick with dust and dirt. It looked more like the entrance to a badger's set. And the light was getting so far away. We're under enchantment, shouted Finn. This is no palace. We have to get out of here. The heroes pulled out their swords and they fought and cut their way out. Dust and dirt falling on their heads until eventually they stood once more in the lightful world. But when they turned to look at where the palace had been, where the dune had been, they saw there was nothing there but an old hollow hill covered with grey stones and fresh turf. This was a fairy hill, a place of great danger and enchantment. We've had a lucky escape there, said Finn. But there was something wrong. One of them was missing, and even heroes can count. They turned around. There was nothing there but a small hole in the side 
of the ancient cairn, the hollow hill. Fearfully they peered into the dim darkness, and there in the shadow they saw Conanwale. Oh, he was still stuffing his face. But what he was eating was not fresh bread and fine meats and drinking red wine. No, he was filling his face with the juiciest of slugs, the crunchiest of snails and wriggling worms. And what he was drinking was not the finest of wines, but muddy, dirty, brackish water. Well, they all shouted into the hole in the bank, Conan, you've got to get out of there. You're under enchantment. But it was as if he'd never heard a single word they were saying. But Finn, being a champion and a warrior, was not one to leave a man behind. And so, with Gull at his back and with a somewhat reluctant Diarmuid, who was happy to leave Colin to his fate, they fought their way back in, hacked their way through the bank until they could just about force themselves through and back into the shadowed sheer hall. Well, they stood in front of Colin, waving their hands in his face, and suddenly the trunks wore off, and Colin saw them. He was just about to place into his mouth a huge, black, glistening slug. Colin yelled in horror and tried to stand, but it was no good. He was stuck fast to his seat. The three heroes flexed their muscles, and with the greatest of efforts, they pulled, and Colin came free. The four of them, tumbling over each other, all struggled to escape from the ever-diminishing hole in the bank. Finally, covered in dirt and moss and mud, they stood out in a lightful world. They were safe. And when Finn turned round, there was nothing there but a hollow hill. All sign of the entrance was gone, and all that stood there was the grey-green hollowed hill in the dappled shadow of the trees. And then Finn heard a groan. <coughs> Someone in terrible pain. <coughs> He turned round, and there was Conan. The man was in agony, for when they pulled him from his chair, he'd left the skin of his back behind. And all oh, that was sore. Now Finn was never one to leave a man in trouble, and he looked around for something to help his friend. His eye fell on an old sheepskin that was lying on the floor. Quickly, he picked it up and clapped it onto his friend's back. And there it stuck. And there it grew. And if ever the Fianna were in want of woolly socks in winter to keep their feet warm, or a woolly hat to keep their hair in place, all they had to do was to shear the wool from Conanwale. For it said that Conanwale grew sheep's wool on his back for the rest of his life. And you know, there are many superpowers that our heroes have, many gifts and skills but the strangest one I've ever come across is the power of having sheep's wool growing on your back. And that's Colin Will. No hair on his head, but sheep's wool on his back. Just one of the stories of Colin Will. Well, I hope you found the story fun. I think it'll do for almost any age group, adult or children, and it's one of my favourites. But for now... Until another time, I'll say goodbye and I hope you enjoyed listening.